Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it and go to two passages today. I want you to go to Acts chapter 6, if you will. Acts chapter 6, and then hold that spot and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are visiting with us or a haven't been here in a while, um, we're working through the book of Timothy, and we're trying to figure out or answer the question, if we are the church, the people, not the facilities, the people, then how do God's people live life? How do we... How do we live together in community? How do we be a testimony to the world? How does what we have differ from everybody else and everything else? Our world is full of religions and philosophies. So how do we know that what we adhere to and hold dear is correct? And that's what we're doing. But first of all, to kind of set your minds thinking in that, I want to point out the obvious that we've tried to celebrate a lot of. It's Thanksgiving weekend, y'all. All right, there's my best Newfoundlandese Americanese trying to put that together, all right? So it's, it's Thanksgiving weekend. How many of you are eating, are eating turkey today? Hands up, all right. How many are eating turkey tomorrow? All right, it's about a, how many are eating turkey today and tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, there you go. So let me ask you, now you've seen a couple of videos, some funny, some serious, some into, what are you thankful for? Tell me what you're thankful for. Go ahead, John, say it. Elijah. Amen. Safe birth. Amen. Good stuff. Anybody? What are you all thankful for? Salvation. Salvation. There we go. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Bruce. Praising the Lord for the church and this church in particular. Anybody else? What are you thankful for? My marriage. There we go. Friends. Health. Huh? Huh? Health care, yes, yeah, that's right. In Canada, health care, yay, yay Canada, right? <laughs> I once heard a, an American pastor say, you know the difference between a Canadian and American? A Canadian is an unarmed American with a health plan. There you go, so. <laughs> right? Anybody else, what are you thankful for? This is not a trick question. What are you thankful for? F- huh? Life, okay. Amen. Somebody over here yelled something out? Jesus, being okay, ah, there you go, right on, yeah, being here, that's right, amen, anybody else, what are you thankful for, amen, amen, (laughs) that's it, that's it, you got up this morning, Eldon, that's it, praise the Lord, so now, let me, this one might be a little harder, Um, who here knows where Thanksgiving came from for Canada and why we celebrate it on the second Monday of October. Anybody know that one? Huh? Pilgrims or something? I think that's more American. All right. Huh? There we go. There, someone is looking it up. Say it. Say it. Oh, you're not looking it up. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Now, believe it or not, that's a theory. It's if you actually do it now, look, I'm not smart on this one. I've studied this all week. All right. Do you know that the history or how Canada came to celebrate is very convoluted? All right. We really don't have a straight answer. There is a theory that's back in 1572, a guy named Martin Forbisher, when he was trying to find the Northwest Passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific at somewhere along the way, stopped and had Thanksgiving. But then there are all kinds of other theories. And until 1950, Canada celebrated Thanksgiving with the Americans in November. And it was only in 1951 that Parliament passed a bill that we would celebrate on the second Monday of October. And the idea was that we would join more with Europe because of our our climate, that our harvest was earlier and it was more about harvest and, and, and the celebration of that time. Now... Yet, how many of you didn't celebrate Thanksgiving because you didn't know that? Exactly. Exactly. See, this is what I wanted you to see as we get started today, is that often many of us will do something, will observe something, will take part in something, we enjoy it, promote it, support it, and make much of it, but sometimes many of us don't know why we do it. We don't understand the origin. We don't understand why it came to be. We don't understand why it's important. 
And I want to suggest to you all this morning that we do this even when it comes to church as well. We have a whole bunch of things that we do in church that often everybody does, everybody comes, everybody assumes, but when you really ask people, they have no idea why. And I think it's important that we do know the why. So let me ask you a series of questions rhetorically. You don't have to answer them, but what makes a church a church? What makes a church a church? What makes a church a good church? Because everybody has an opinion. If you go out and ask people, what, you know, what do you think of that church? Or what do you think of church or organized religion? Everyone will give you an answer, an opinion. But ask them, okay, so what's the difference between a bad church and a good church? How would you define church? How would you define a functioning church? How important is it for you to know that the church you attend, where you call this your home, you can say, without a doubt, I know that church knows, trusts in, preaches, and teaches, and follows God's Word. How important is that for you to not just say, but to know? I mean, to really know. How do you know if your church, if this church, here's a great one, is a New Testament church? Is a new, and and can, can that even be knowable? All right? In other words, how do we know that everything we do here, that how, how, from how we believe God saved us from ourselves and our sinfulness... So it's not just that God saved us, but he saved us from our sinfulness. So God didn't just save me because I did bad things. He saved me because I'm bad and I do bad things. All right. I didn't go to God and just say, hey, listen, I'm overall a good guy, but I've made some mistakes to clean me up. No, I went to God and said, I deserve hell. I deserve your wrath. What we read about in Romans 2. But I own the fact that Jesus came through God and did everything for me. So I go to him and I say, God, I thank you for saving me from myself, from my sinfulness. And I acknowledge how God has called us to himself, how God has brought us together and how God has put us in community and how God wants us to live life. And listen to this, share life with each other and with all those around us. See, how would you answer all of these questions? And you need to understand, church, that the answers to these questions, the ramification of all of these questions are simply staggering. They really, really are. You see, how much of life do we do simply based on, does this feel right? Does this feel right? Guys, that's your culture. To make decisions based on does it feel right or does it feel good or does it at least meet my perceived needs? How often do we make massive decisions about our lives? Decisions that often will affect the lives of those around us purely based on how we feel or how we think others will think of us or how they'll feel. But how much of our decision making, how much does it go into God's word? and in prayer, and seeking the Holy Spirit, and in seeking the advice of godly counselors around us. You see, here's my thing. How many of us treat the church like a trip to Baskin-Robbins? You got 31 flavors, pick one. Right? A lot of people do that. A lot of people in our world do this. They think of church as an option or an add-on like you'd be buying a car. Give me the options and I'll pick what I want. And a lot of people, I remember when I was, my last ministry, I was in Charlottetown. We had a, a wealth of, of churches, good churches in the city. And we actually coined this phrase called the Charlottetown Shuffle. Because people, I was in Charlottetown for 15 years. And I know of people that have been in 15 churches in 15 years. Because they think it's like going to Baskin Robbins. What am I in the mood for today? I'll take another scoop of this or I'll have another slice of that. What's this church have? What does that church have? What, does, what are they good at? What do I like about them? And a lot of people do this. Or many of us maybe treat Jesus like the fire alarm on a wall. 
break that little strip of glass in case of emergency. So in other words, the reason that so many of us struggle with church, the reason so many of us struggle with community, the reason so many of us struggle with a clear and steady understanding of who God is, of what He has and is doing, and how we are a part of that plan (laughs) is that we only have enough Jesus as we want and not what we need. Now let me say that again. Too many of us only have enough Jesus that we want, not what we need. Not what we need. There's a hymn in the hymn book that says, More about Jesus would I know. Remember that old hymn of the faith? More about Jesus would I know. Now, let me ask you that. Is that true of you and of us? Did we get up this morning and say, Lord, more about Jesus would I know? And by the way, because that's an easy one, because many of us who will do that on Sunday, what about Monday to Saturday? Will we get up tomorrow morning and say, Jesus, more about you would I know? How much of our life is spent settling for the status quo or the mediocre. Now, one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses. Here is what he writes, and I, I know this is going to be on the screen, I believe. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he writes, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, or that means in, in, a, in a mud puddle, because he cannot or she cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Listen to this. We are far too easily pleased. I want you to soak that in. On Thanksgiving weekend, when we're coming to God's Word, when we've gathered as the church. You didn't come to church. We gathered as the church. If you are a child of God, if there's been a point in your life where you went to Jesus and said, I need you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me. I confess myself to you. I repent to you. Lord, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. Then you're His child. You're God's child have you had that but are you living life far too easily pleased this is the question we need to ask ourselves and so this is all of my segue into another question and i i really do want to watch your faces when i ask this so when i say to you the word deacon (laughs) what comes to your mind some of you now are not making eye contact with me because you don't, you don't want to give away what you're thinking. Do you have a, a positive word association with the word deacon or a negative one? What about when I say something like deacon's board or board of deacons? What comes rushing to your mind? Do you have warm and happy thoughts? Do you even understand what it is? Or are you sitting there going, Steve, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right? Well, the word deacon conjures up a lot of different images for a lot of different people even sitting in this room all right for many of you if you grew up in a baptist church deacons have represented often the authority in the church that's what the deacons have represented in many baptist churches today they are the ruling body even the pastor or pastors are employed by and work for the deacons it's the deacons board that they report to Now, find that one out biblically for me as I tip my hand a little bit about my opinion on this. But for some of you from other churches, particularly if you're from a mainline liturgical church, deacons are identified as a step along the road to becoming a priest or a minister. They serve as a clerical order that maintains the facilities or administrating the business of the church. Some of you might have even heard the term archbishop or archdeacon sorry archdeacon now that one i got to tell you is from my perspective wild for me i can't imagine putting the word arch with the word deacon in any context all right i just find that one a bit hard for me to grasp all right but these are all the things that you're going to find like i said the term is identified in a lot of different ways by a lot of different churches 
A friend of mine said this, if somebody were to tell you that they were a deacon in the church, you'd probably have to ask them a few questions to find out what that is, what they mean, and what they do, because it varies so much. Now, the reason I'm laying all of this out is because here's my big premise. For those of you that have been here and we've been working through 1 Timothy, here's what I have constantly said, all right? And this is where I'm going to park a little bit. And this is really just a sermon of introduction in Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. But I've often said right theology leads to right living and always results in right relationships. All right. So think that through right theology. So the proper understanding of the Bible will always lead you to a right living. And if you are living right, then it leads to right relationships. Now, I want to explain that a little bit more because I've been asked recently by some of you as to how can that statement be true when in fact we see all kinds of issues in the church all the time. It's not like the church is a place of perfection, right? Have any of you found the perfect church yet? Just checking. All right, because I haven't. In fact, I've told you, my father told me if I ever found the perfect church, not to join it because I would wreck it, all right? So, you know, save yourself the trouble of trying to find the perfect church, all right? It doesn't exist because we're a a collection of sinners. But I still maintain this statement that right theology leads to right living and always results in right relationships. Because here's what you're going to find in the Bible, and this is why I want to start in Acts 6. Here's one. My friend put this this way, and I've borrowed it slash stole it from him, and I'm going to say it enough times that... The way pastors usually work is the first time they say something, they'll say, as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so says. The next time they say it, they go, as most people say. And the third time they say it, they go, as I always say. And so it kind of morphs into their statement, all right? So this is my friend's construction, but I loved it too much to, to not share it with you. He says, the right people in the right positions making the right decisions makes all the difference in the world. Now, I want you to think about these two statements. So I've said right theology leads to right living, which results in right relationships. So couple that because the Bible will consistently teach and display what's on the screen. That the right people in the right positions making the right decisions makes all the difference in the world. And I want you to carry that with me now to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, let me give you the background here, all right? Notice it starts with, in these days. Now, Acts is written by a guy by the name of Luke. Luke was a doctor. He traveled. He was a companion with the apostle Paul. And so he writes two books, Luke and Acts, all right? Luke bears his name, and it's a two-part documentary to a Greek by the name of Theophilus. And basically what he's saying is he wants Theophilus to know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of Man. He really is God in the flesh. So all of Luke is, here's what Jesus said about himself and said what he was here to do. All of Acts is everything he said he'd do, he did. This is what you're reading when you read Luke and Acts. And it's always good to read the two together so you can see the two-part documentary. So in these days, now notice this. When the disciples were increasing in number, a good thing was happening. People are coming to Christ. People are being changed. Their lives are being overcome. Drunks are are getting victory over alcohol. People that have been ravaged by the sex slave have been freed. And people that have broken up families are being healed. And all these types, wayward children are coming back to Jesus. All of these things are happening. And it was a great day. Revival was there. It was just amazing. (laughs) And then a complaint by the Hellenists arose. In the midst of something excellent, something bad happens. And notice this, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now you need to get this. All right? We notice when it says Hellenists, so the church is predominantly Jewish. Mostly Jewish people are coming to Jesus. But... Hellenists, proselytes, 
those that are Gentiles that are converting, have converted to Judaism, and those that have been here and have heard about Jesus are coming to Christ and making Jesus the Lord of their lives. But in the midst of all this, and if you read Acts 1 to 5, thousands, in fact, maybe in excess of 10,000 people have come to Christ in a very short amount of time. Now you've got a real complaint. In fact, this is so real. Think about this. This is like these Hellenists were either Gentiles that have converted to Judaism and now to Christ, or they're even Jews that have chosen to live in a Greek lifestyle. Because in the first century, Greek culture was the American culture, all right? In our world, if you want to understand Greek culture, think about America and how American culture has permeated the world. You can go anywhere in the world now and get yourself a can of Coca-Cola. The biggest McDonald's in the world is in Moscow, all right? I've been to McDonald's in Russia. I've been to McDonald's in China. I've been to McDonald's in uh, Israel. Everywhere, there's a McDonald's. You can get a Big Mac, even in Israel, a kosher one. All right. You can get a kosher Big Mac in Israel. So it was like American culture. Now, Canada is getting there. Just today, I saw Tim Hortons in downtown New York. All right. Just this week, I saw a great little display where they've got a Tim Hortons in downtown New York. So who knows? Maybe the great Canadian invasion is happening of the United States. And we're going to give the world Tim's. All right. For you Starbucks lovers. Sorry. Tim's is going to be it. All right. So there it is. But I want you to realize what's going on here. So it wasn't just that there was a complaint. It wasn't like someone was just being overlooked. The reason that Luke includes this is because some people in their complaint were thinking, well, maybe this is racially motivated. Like there was real tension here. Some people thought, like, are we being left out or neglected because of our race or our ethnicity? Like this, this was tense. This had the real ability to explode, like to go very, very poorly. Now, notice what happens. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So the apostles call together and they have a business meeting. They have a business meeting. They call everybody together and they say, now notice this. They don't go into race relations. They don't go into a 12-step building program. They don't go into a mercy ministry yet. They go in and look at what they say. Right out of the gates, the disciples said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, Now let the weight of that sink in. So in our vernacular, they were basically, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God and basically become waiters. We're not called to be waiters. Now, when you read it, and if you just read that, you'd be like, well, that's awfully uppity of them. How stuck up is that of them? Well, wait a second. Go back a chapter. All right. Go back a chapter to Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, uh, sorry, Acts chapter five. I want you to realize what was happening to them. In Acts chapter 5, when you come to the end of it, and I want you to realize this, in verse 40, back a chapter, it says, and when they had called called in the apostles, so this was the Sanhedrin, those that were in charge in Jerusalem, they called them in, now notice this, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name And every day in the temple and from house to house, notice this, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So when these guys say, listen, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serving tables. They were not looking for an easy way out. They were not saying this because they just wanted to be, you know, office potatoes. They they were saying this probably still bearing the scars on their backs of a beating. These were men that were willing to die for Jesus. They were willing to die for this church of believers. They were willing to give it all up. And yet, in the midst of this complaint, in the midst of this very real issue, these guys still said, while everything is urgent, everything is urgent, this is not what is most important for what God called us to do. So look at what happens. Therefore, and whenever you find a therefore, find out what it's there for. Okay? So it's therefore because of what they've just said, it's not good or right that they should give up preaching the word of God. They say, brothers, church, pick out from among you seven men 
of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Now notice this, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, let me get personal to Calvary Baptist just for a second. Because if I were to ask you, Calvary Baptist, who are your deacons? What would your answer be? Who are the deacons of this church? I could probably ask you and you'd all tell me who the elders are. But who are the deacons? And the very fact that maybe you can't think of it right away helps us understand why I'm preaching this. Because this is important, all right? But I want you to notice as well, since I think Calvary, we're learning about what it means to be a New Testament church. I also want everybody here to see the sequence of this. All right, notice what happens. A complaint arises. The apostles call a business meeting and know the sequence of events. They say, you church, pick out the deacons. Because I submit that this is where deacons were born, okay? The need for deacons. And I'll make my case over the next couple of weeks. But here they say, you pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now notice the next sequence of events. Whom we, that's the apostles, will appoint to this duty. So for those of you in church, when you've seen a lot of church structures, this is one thing that stood out to me because often in church it is this. The pastors or the elders or a nominating committee usually comes up with a group of names, goes to a business meeting and says, here your church, here's your group of names. And the church says, yes, we like them or yes, we agree or yes, this will be what it is. That's actually not the sequence of events here. In the sequence of events, the disciples tell the church, pick out the people. Here's the spiritual criteria. When they bring the names forward, they say, we will appoint them to this duty. And notice that. Notice next. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, here's my favorite part on this. The next verse. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. It pleased everybody. The idea that these disciples said, listen, there's a need and it is urgent and it is important, but it is not so important that we give up the word of God and prayer. So church, here's what you're looking for. We need, and and hear me this, they basically say, we need seven waiters. We need seven waiters. Pick out the best waiters you got in the congregation. Bring them to us. And we'll appoint them to be the head waiters of our church. (laughs) And this pleased everybody. Now, you know the gospel has gripped the church when they basically say, we're going to focus on prayer and the word of God. You bring us your best servants and we'll let them serve everybody. And everybody's like, yes, there's going to be no glory in it. There's no power in it. It's just serve. And God gets all the credit. Now, notice this. And they chose seven men, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And that means, again, he was a Jewish convert, but then had come to Christ. And notice this, they, these they set before the apostles. Notice again the sequence. So the church picks out the men, they bring them, they put them before the disciples. Now notice what they do. And they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And basically what that means is they blessed them. They prayed and they, and they appointed them to this work. They said, you will be these seven waiters. Now, here's something amazing. You know that this was right. Notice next. And the word of God continued to increase. Now, I want you to catch that in verse one. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing, but now a complaint arises, something bad, something potentially explosive, but they handle it. And then it says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly Jerusalem. And no, don't miss this part. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Don't. So often you read your Bible and you're like, okay, so some priests got saved. Think about what that means. These were priests in the temple at Jerusalem. For them to come to Christ and become obedient to the faith was to basically walk in and said, I'm going to quit and I will clean out my office. They were done as priests of the Jews. 
you could not be a priest of the Jews in the temple and believe in Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Messiah, all right, and that your boss was responsible for getting him killed. So when these guys believed, they were out of a job. So Luke wants us to understand just how profound the effect was on the church. So remember what I said, right theology leads to right living and results in right relationships. Well, how does that happen in a place when you got human beings together and we mess up? Because you put the right people in the right positions and when they make the right decisions, it makes a difference to all the world. And this is what I want you to understand. So do you see it? When issues came up in the life of the church, when real issues arose and people were hurt, even angry, relationships were on the verge of being broken, what happens? Theology leads to living, which results in restored relationship. This is what's happening. Do you guys realize that even Solomon said that when a man's ways please the Lord, he'll make even his enemies to be at peace with him? Now that doesn't mean, now notice, he doesn't say he'll make it even his enemies to be his friends. That's not what he said. He said he'll make even his enemies to be at peace with him. In other words, even your enemies will realize, I may hate you, I may not like you, I may not like, like what you stand for, but man, do you stand for something. And again, I've told this to the church, right? One of my favorite stories is about George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was used of God in the Great Awakening to preach to, they say, upwards to 20,000 people without the aid of a speaker or a microphone or a PA system. And there are stories of when he preached that 8,000 people would come to Christ in one time. One time he preached and they said the weight of the Holy Spirit was so heavy upon him that 8,000 people fainted from the effects of his preaching. But his neighbor was an atheist. His neighbor did not believe in God, thought he was a buffoon, thought he was an idiot. And one day, he, Whitfield was preaching, and another neighbor saw his neighbor leaving. He said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to hear Whitfield preach. And the guy said, but you're an atheist. You don't believe in God. And his friend said, yes, but Whitfield does, and that amazes me. All right? So when a man's ways please the Lord, he'll make even his enemies to be at peace with him. I want you to see this. Now, notice what was required. Notice what was required here. People, positions, and decision-making. And the people who filled the decisions, who may, or positions, and who made the decisions had to be a certain type of person. You see, if you notice, now turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, from Acts chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, you're going to notice, if you actually look at verses 1 to 13, Paul starts out by saying, here's what a church needs. A church needs elders and a church needs deacons. And these are the qualifications for pastors and here are the qualifications for elders. But I want you to hold an image in your head. Deacons are waiters or waitresses. All right, I want you to hold that image in your head. Don't think power. Don't think authority. Don't think in charge. Think servant, service. All right, think waiter. Think that, okay? And when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, uh, deacons likewise, verse 8, likewise. And if you write in your Bible, I want you to highlight or circle the word likewise, because in a couple weeks that will make sense to you. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise, and again, if you write in your Bible, highlight or circle that word likewise because that's important, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let, all, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to take an exercise, if you go back and read verses 1 to 7, you'll find that these two lists of qualifications look very similar. They sound very similar. So there's only a couple things that stand out that make them different. See, 1 Timothy 3 talks about elders and deacons and the required qualifications and we tend to stare at the qualifications so we can try and figure out 
Who should one be and who shouldn't one be? We try to say, should it be men only or men and women or women only? And what are they supposed to do and all that? But I submit to you, church, that when we get lost in this, we miss the point of the list in 1 Timothy 3. They are similar because they're describing not the functions of an office, but the type of person who fulfills that office. So here's what I want to say. Both the office of church leader, so we've said that elders are the servant leaders of the church, and the office of church worker, that's deacon, who are the leading servants of the church, require the same type of person, a mature Christian whose behavior is above reproach. All right, now, everybody look up. Is that you? Are you a Christian, a mature Christian, whose behavior is above reproach? Now, that does not mean you're perfect. That does not mean you're sinless. We already know that. No, no, no. Remember, right theology leads to right living and results in right relationships. It means, no, I will put my faith and trust in God and His Word. And I will seek to represent Him in all areas of of my life. So we're looking at on this Thanksgiving Sunday weekend how God has structured his church to be the greatest reflection of him. How can this church enjoy what we read in Acts chapter 6? The word of God increased and many people came to know the Lord. And they came to know God as much more than just a cosmic spirit or power. They came to know the Lord as the one true God who is not only our creator and the rightful judge of the living and the dead, because God is, but because of his love for us and sending Jesus, his son, to live and die for us, when we trust in him, we can be saved. What that means is when we own our junk and we come to God with it and we say, Lord, be merciful to me. He's not just our creator. Then he becomes our father. Then he becomes our father. Yes, doing church right is that important. And so for you here this morning that say, you know what, Pastor Steve, listen, I believe in God. I trust in God's word. I'm in a relationship with God. I want to be a person who wants to follow God and after his ways expressed in his word. And I want to do that in a way that Christ would have us to do it with humility and love, and patience, and courage, and compassion. See, being courageous about what God's Word says does not mean you become a narrow-minded bigot. It means you have compassion on people. So you may believe that God's Word says something, and people don't agree with it, or people are living in sin. It doesn't mean because you're a Christian you're better than anybody else. Because you're a Christian you found Christ who's better than everybody else, and you want to bring everybody to Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so with all of this background, I want to conclude by saying this to you. I want to come back all the way around to what I believe should be the most important thing for every church. All right? You can look this up in your Bible if you want, but two verses. John 13, 35. John 13, 35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on his way to the cross. And he says to them at the Last Supper, If you love me, keep my commandments. Then he makes this statement. The way you love me, the way you obey me, the way you love by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Look at it. If you have love for one another. But notice this. By this all people, not some people, not most people, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now think about the church and think about being waiters and waitresses. Think about caring for each other. Think about a church where you have people that give themselves to the Word of God and to prayer. Think about where you have a church where you've got a group of people that literally eat, sleep, get up in the morning, and all they think about is, how can I serve God and serve others? How can I love people and love God and serve others? How can I do this? Because the way you and I love one another... Now listen, that's not Hollywood love. That's not Hollywood love, which is, you know, let me do what I want. Let me go what I, where I want. Let me do what I want to do. None of you love like that. If you do, you don't love somebody. Love is loving enough to confront. 
Love is loving enough to say no. Love is loving enough. When, when the world starts up, you know, if you're a Christian, don't judge anybody. Matthew 7 says, judge not be, lest ye be judged. And yes, it says that. And yes, they are completely missing the point. When Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, here's what he's saying. What we read in Romans 2. How can you judge somebody from a sense of, I have the right to lord over you because you don't do what I do easily. In other words, when you start to play God. That's what it means not to judge somebody else. But in love, we confront each other. In love, we point each other to God's word. So when I come to you, if I have a friend of mine and he's married and he's sleeping on his wife, I'm not not loving when I go to him and say, listen, dude, that's wrong. You should not do that. This is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your marriage. It's going to hurt your reputation. It's going to hurt the name. That's not being a judge. That's me being loving. That's me being a friend. All right? So it doesn't mean that. We love each other enough to confront each other, but we, care. we don't give up on each other. We care for each other. We're family. When we rub each other the wrong way, when we get off on the wrong foot, when we fail each other and we let each other down and we, we, do a, we, we never say never because we're in love with each other because we're in love with Christ. Now, what would that look like to the world? What would that look like to the world? Now, coupled that is John chapter 17, verse 20. In John chapter 17, verse 20, this is the real Lord's Prayer. John chapter 17, verse 20 in Jesus, all of John 17 is the Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer from Matthew chapter 6. This is the prayer. Now, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. So he's talking about his 12 disciples. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying, and the weight of sin is coming down upon him. And Peter, James, and John are asleep, and the other disciples have spread, a lot, spread across everywhere. Judas has betrayed him, and here he is. And he says, I don't pray for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. I want you to realize Jesus prayed for you in the garden of Gethsemane. And notice what he says. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, here's the reason. So now it's about unity. I want them to be so in love with each other. The world knows they're really Christians. But now Jesus takes it to a whole other level. He says the way that they are unified together shows this. Notice what he says. So that the world may believe that you have sent me at the end of verse 21. So the way you and I are unity, in unity together, the way you and I are unified together proves to the world that Jesus is God. Huh. It, is that us? Are we so in love with each other that the world says they are definitely followers of Christ? Are we so in unity together by the way we structure our church, the way we do things, that the world says, listen, I don't know if I'm ready to believe, but I do know this, Jesus must be God. Because there's no other explanation for the way this has infected these people. So on this Thanksgiving Day, on this weekend, let us trust God at His Word, church. Let's step back and see the big picture. See, I don't want you, as we study through this, don't treat church structure, don't treat First Timothy, don't treat pastors and deacons and how a church should be built. Don't treat it like Canadian Thanksgiving, where everybody comes and everybody celebrates, but nobody knows why. This is why I'm preaching this. This is why I'm taking the time to dig into this and work through this because you might say, Pastor Steve, listen, you're a sweaty mess up there and I think you're the only one excited in the room. All right? Well, I want you to know why. Because as elders here at Calvary, with Paul and, and Daniel and I and with Jeff, I know with Steve Daw, who feels God's called to ministry and John Hancock and we look to the starting churches in this, I, I, let's see Bob and Shelley and I've been praying about Shea Heights from the day I met this couple and we're still praying for Shea Heights and that God would start a church in Shea Heights. I want you to realize when we meet and we talk and we study and we pray and we pray for this city and we ask God to save souls, my desire is not just to see this church get a whole bunch of people sitting in chairs. Guys, to be honest with you, I can go probably be like an Amway salesman and build a church. Of that, like, I can do, I can start a sports club. I can do something and get a lot of people together. Like, 
you, you know, I, I love the barbecue. I've, I've, I've t- like, I could probably start the steak shack and get a couple of hundred people to come. All right? That's not why God's called me into ministry. It's not why your elders do this. We want to actually measure our ability to really care for each other and for people and in seeing them grow in Christ. That's the purpose of a church. And as we pray and consider what we should do next in regards to our facilities, we want to be a church who refuses to have numbers as our goal. We want to be and we need to be a people who are passionate about the gospel passionate about Jesus Christ, passionate about living out the Great Commission where we go into all the world and make the make disciples, where you are a people that you invite your friends into your lives and you invite your friends and your co-workers into your church and you just get busy with them and you get excited and people can't make sense of your excitement just like many of you can't make sense of mine. All right, that's not a bad thing. It's a little awkward at times, but it's not bad. All right? You've got to push through that. If we are going to be passionate about these things, we need to start by being passionate about God's Word. And so like we did with elders, we're going to look at this from all of the different things. We're going to look at what deacons are, and we're going to look at what deacons do, and we're going to look at how you choose deacons. But as we end, I just want to ask you, do you wonder and glory at God's order and structure? See, God does nothing by mistake. Nothing is arbitrary in God's plan. God created with a plan. God sent Jesus to earth with a plan. Jesus lived and died and rose again according to God's plan. Now, everybody, you need to listen to me. You exist from the youngest of you to the oldest of you. You exist as part of God's plan. You are not an accident. You are not insignificant. You are created in the image and likeness of God to show forth His glory and proclaim His power and His sovereignty and wisdom and purposes. And that's for every human being. But do you know him? (laughs) Do you know God as father or simply as judge? And Christians, do you settle for mud pies when it comes to Jesus and his word and his church, chasing after what can never satisfy or never fulfill? Or will you serve Jesus the way he served us? And you want to know how to do that? I want to challenge you today. On this Thanksgiving, as you go home to your Thanksgiving dinners, as you gather today, this afternoon, tomorrow, I want you, why don't you begin by just giving thanks to God? Being a thankful people. Start writing down what you're thankful for. Thank God for all He did to redeem you. Jesus' birth and His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension. For all Jesus endured to bring you to God. Get excited about that. Thank God for your family. If you're single or you're still living at home, be thankful for the mom and dad that God gave you. Even if they're not perfect, even if they failed, God still used them to give you life, to let you know about His presence where you can magnify Him. If you're married, give God thanks for your spouse. Give God thanks for your children. Thank God for the spiritual blessings in your life, that He pardons your sin, joins you to Christ, adopts you as His child. Thank God for the words and hundreds of promises in His Bible, for promising to hear your prayers and He'll be with you when you pass through the fire and the flood. Praise God. Thank God for your church, for your hand, your friends, your, your small group leader, your children's ministry teachers, or even your pastors. Thank God for your material blessings, your health and strength, your job, your apartment or home, for car and gas in your car, for your computer and your phone, for the other kinds of luxuries and conveniences. Thank God for how He treats you, how patient and long-suffering He is, how faithful He is. Thank God for the many mercies as you can discern in every affliction. John Piper wrote a book where he said, I thank God for my cancer. Because God used it to display His glory to Him and others. My dad called me two days ago to tell me that something's wrong with him. He has a test on Tuesday. And if this test doesn't go well, my my dad will, will not do well. The last time my dad had this procedure, he almost died. I was actually called to the hospital and I was told to get my mom and get them ready for my dad's death. And, uh, so dad called me this week and said, son, this has come back and I got to have this test done again. 
And here's the thing. I asked Dad, I said, Dad, how are you doing? In the midst of this, my dad's sister is dying of cancer. Um, she'll die probably in the next four to eight weeks here in St. John's, and I'm hoping to go see her this week. But I asked Dad how he was doing. You know what my father said to me? I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I said, Dad, really? I said, I, you know, I, I know you're supposed to say that to me. I'm your son. You're my dad. I know you're supposed to be all strong and tough and say that. But I said, Dad, really? Like, just me to me now. Mom's not around. You know, I'm in my 40s now. You can talk to me differently. You know, you don't have to there, there me. How you doing? <laughs> he said, Stephen, listen to me. And he got this little dad voice thing going. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I said, Dad, what do you mean? He said, Steve, because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My sister knows Jesus. You're following God. Mom knows Jesus. So if I'm going to die, I go instantly into the presence of God, my Savior. And if I live, then I get to serve Him. See, that's what you get as a Christian. Even death is not your enemy. So will you be thankful this weekend? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity just to look somewhat big picture at the structure of the church. As we think about this office of deacons, table waiters. And Lord, as we dig around in this over the next couple of weeks, as my brother Daniel preaches from First, Second Peter next week about false teachers who try to diminish this and get our attention away from it. Because Lord, it's, it's, it's not flashy. Lord, as we come back to this and we learn about what deacons are and what deacons do and how deacons should be chosen, I pray that you will help us to fight through, Lord, the temptation maybe of boredom or assumption and to dig in this and find the beauty of church and to be thankful. So, Lord, if there's one here this morning and they don't know you, I pray that they will not leave until they know God is my Father and not just my judge. I pray that for Christians, if they're hurting, if they're hanging on to something, Lord, are, they, are we too busy even as a church playing in mud pies? In mud puddles, making mud pies when you've invited us to a beautiful vocation at the beach. Lord, speak to us. May your spirit speak long past this service. And indeed, may we say wholeheartedly, all I have is Christ. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.